Are you an Amazon shopper like Patra and I? Do you love Off Air with Emily and Patra? When you're ready to search the depths of Amazon, visit us at offairwithep.com first. Click on the Amazon ad and continue shopping like normal. This helps keep Off Air with Emily and Patra going strong. We receive a small percentage of any purchases you make through our affiliate link, but it's literally zero extra costs to you. Psychotic geeks obsessed with every little detail. It'll never get on the air. Well, I think it's good for a show to go off the air before it becomes stale and repetitive. I've just been informed that we are going off the air. Off air with Emily and Catra. I might need to pee first. That's fine. I've only got one bill left to pay, and it's my car payment. Ugh. I kind of want to set it up to be auto withdrawn, drawn, because mm-hmm. I just am really bad at paying my bills. I understand. I just. I used to be the one who did it. Mm-hmm. And then like five or six years ago, Nick took it over. So I haven't paid my bills in five or six years. Like I'll drop stuff off sometimes. That's it. Hey, do you want to invite friends to this? Because these are just for Saturday. I was going to see if I had any friends that wanted them. But do you have some friends? Uh, let me see if Christopher's <sighs> parents maybe want to go. You like how I shove them at you? You have any friends? Want some friends? No. Got any friends? Mine's a, a small story that I found looking for something else. So, oh, story cool. of my life. And you I go pee first. Oh, fuck. Thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> also, try my headphones. Okay. I changed them out with some that were laying over there. The right side still seems very quiet. And I'm really like concerned that maybe there's something wrong with my ear. Yeah, I don't. It sounds fine to me. And remember, it was like ringing earlier. Yeah. The spider in there. I don't like that. I'm sorry, but there's. I, Dr. Jones says, yeah, a spider spinning a web. Mm. Hello and welcome to Off Air with Emily and Patra. Hello, everyone. Your weekly true crime podcast. Oh my God, is it 1930? Mm-hmm. You sound like a, <laughs> a radio guy from the 1930s, <laughs> right? Yeah, speaking of 30, <clears throat> this is episode 30. Fuck, it's not. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. I Look guess it's us. good that I'm doing a big, giganto case and have 24 pages of notes. Good, because this one is like, mine is like a classic, um, I found this story looking for information on another story and got distracted. Patra Jones, like, yeah, it doesn't even have that much info, but I was angry. It angered me. It got, yeah. me, it got me riled up. It got, you, got your emotions flowing. Yeah, it got me riled up. Emotions. I understand. I really want a hot dog. Ooh. We talked about hot dogs earlier today, this morning. I don't really want a hot dog. Maybe. I saw a picture I on... I campfire tonight. Oh, you should. You want me to go get you some hot dogs for my brother? I have hot dogs <laughs> in my fridge. Well, that doesn't you. fucking matter because my brother still wants you to have them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have chicken and... No, take these hot dogs and a box of extra toasty Cheez-Its. Mm. Those are the good ones. Those are the good ones. Yeah. I just like Cheez-Its. Oh, my gosh. Me too. It's really hard to disappoint me with some Cheez-Its. Right. That's true. Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, mama. It's been a week. It's been a, like, is it ever going to not be a week? I I feel like, yeah, no, probably not. (sighs) We've gotten a lot done this week, though. We have cranked the workout. Yeah. Yeah. For real. Personal, professional. All of it. Yeah. Everything in between. I took a Benadryl last night. That's why I'm so like, oh. Oh. Yeah. I remembered because I was 
I usually stop drinking coffee once I get off the air this morning in the mornings, and I needed one more cup. Yeah, I yeah. get that. I need like three. But yeah, I don't want any more actually. Yeah, because my stomach feels a little like eh. It's like no. Yeah, because I have like two cups before I come in, and then usually two or three during the morning show. Mm-hmm. I had so I have had five. <laughs> That's my average. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it's okay. It's okay. That's why I I don't have an excuse. Everything's okay. I didn't take a Benadryl last night. I'm not tired and the salespeople are not pissing me off. Liar. <laughs> <laughs> On all of it. Oh my goodness. Everything. All of oh, it's a I got to turn off this TV or else I'm just going to look watch at it? it the entire time. Well, um that reminded me that I need to pull up my if I don't do it now, I will never make that damn office guess who. Oh yeah. And like this computer, maybe Harrison's, the new news guy, and yours at the front are the only ones that have Photoshop, yeah? Mm-hmm. So I have to be sitting over here to do it. Mm-hmm. So usually mm-hmm. when I'm not running the board and I have a boss here telling me what to do and they can't see my computer screen, I'm over here just doing whatever shit I want. Mm-hmm. Well now it's do whatever shit I want time. All right. Yeah. That's fine. Ish. Kind of. Kind of. Not really, but. I mean, kind of. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Kind of. Goodness gracious. I know. I know. So what are we going to do for lunch today? I don't know. You want to go to the garage? Okay. I'm not getting that fish sandwich, though. I'm going to get something else. Okay. I went once and got that Philly cheesesteak, and it was really good. Yeah. I was thinking, I was like, maybe I'll get that Philly cheesesteak, obviously, without the bun, because it just sounds good. Let me look at their Facebook and see what their special is today. Oh, it's fish, because it's Friday. But that's okay. That. (laughs) The fish fish special that we had last, that people got last Friday, it looked good. I don't want to eat it, but it looked good. Emily doesn't care for fish. No, I don't like fish. And... Fried fish is like my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of being young and carefree, and I don't. It doesn't. I just Living like it. Young <laughs> and wild uh, and free. Uh, I see Thursday special, but I don't see Friday special yet. Let me let me go th- a week. Up. Ooh, yes, Wednesdays was a Turkey Manhattan. Ooh, fuck me up. I don't see a Friday special ever. Anyway, well, that's okay. I mean, is it always just fish? Maybe that's probably why. Yeah, probably like it's a fishy <clears throat> Friday. Fishy, fishy. Yeah. It feels like a fishy Friday. It does feel like a fishy Friday. Yeah. There's this freaking bra, <sighs> dude. I know. I'm going to come over there and yank it off oh. of you. I should not have worn it today. My rib, I feel like my rib cages are bruised from this bra. That's I don't like that. I don't like it either. Is it an underwire, you said? Yeah. Or is it? No. What the it's hell? Not, it's just got these two thick, thick old bands over here to mm. keep my boobies up. Well, they look great. Do you see? I definitely looked. The rest of it's like the rest of it. I can't feel anything. It's just like right here, just the side, right there where it's poking me. Yeah, that like pushes them. (sighs) Mm. Whatever. I like don't wear bras without an underwire. I didn't. To be honest, I didn't realize this didn't have an underwire until just now when you asked me. Damn. Noise. 
<laughs> We're so tired today. Um, okay. We have a big event coming up, Girly Golf. I'm so excited. May 8th. We're excited. It's going to be fun. But there's just so much prep involved. Yeah, there's just a lot of prep involved in every event that we do. Yeah. Because it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. Yeah. And 12 and, people ask us all the same questions. And the only two <sighs> perfectionists in the office are the only two that are planning it. Right? So, you know. Uh. Okay, not the only two. Basically. We'll give Amanda some credit. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Amanda gets a lot of credit. She does get a lot of credit. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited, though. I told yeah. Christopher last night, I said, there's a good chance I'm not coming home Wednesday night. He's like, what? Why? <laughs> He's like, hold up. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it's like if I get too intoxicated, I told Patrick I'm sleeping on her couch. And I was like, yeah, because I'm not trying to stay, get sober, go home, come and then come back Mm-mm. three hours later. Oh, we get Arnie's pizza that day. It's been forever since I've had Arnie's and it's so good. It's been forever since I've had pizza. <gasps> Are you going to eat it? You'll be drunk. You need it. If anything, I'll scrape. If if I don't eat it, I'll at least scrape the toppings off and eat the toppings. Okay. Maybe I'll save you because I like Texas Roadhouse does lunch. And it's usually like chicken breast and vegetables, and mm-hmm. I'll save you extra chicken breast for later. We could do that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll figure it out. I ain't worried about it. Me either. But I ain't worried about a thing. Any drinks that are consumed that day are strictly going to be hard liquor. Okay. Well, because beer has carbs, but vodka. What about Jello shots? Jello's good. Jello's okay, golden. good. Because there's lots of Jello shots out there. Well, Christopher, I'm not coming home on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> like that picture, I those two pictures I posted on. Yeah, I do not remember that moment, but it was so funny. Apparently, obviously, you're having a blast, I so I can't wait. <laughs> so hard, and I could not tell you what it was about. I can't wait until mm. it's clean. I, I really want to wear my white shoes that I wore yesterday. Oh, yeah. But they can oh. get uncomfortable. So. I'm about to wear my white Crocs. I Don't might, you worry. I might just wear them and just bring my flip-flops. <laughs> Ooh, smart. Because yeah. they are like they look like golf balls. Oh, my gosh. They so do. So why wouldn't I? I don't know. I don't fine. either. Okay. Okay. I think you're first this week. Holy shit. Okay. So, <laughs> oh, 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 holy shit. All right. So, um, Emily said it's our 30th episode. Tis. So, I didn't know that. Maybe I would have picked a better one. Not a better one. This is a good, it's a good one. Yeah, it's no, good. you're fine. Okay. Because, like I said. It's just not a big one. Mine's 24 pages long. Mainly because I didn't read the entire thing again. <laughs> so, there's probably a lot that I'm going to be able to cut off. Gotcha. Um... <laughs> I didn't write all of this one. Well, I mean, I did write it all myself. So it's in my own words, but I definitely got a lot of info. Um, There was one specific article that I got it all from. I don't remember where it was from, though, to be honest with you. But thanks for that article because it had a lot of info. Good job. I just mash it all together from like three or four pages. I always Google like the wiki and then I Google a timeline, and then I read, like, an article after the final thing has happened yeah, in the case. Yeah, like a follow-up yeah. type of deal. So that's what I, that's where I get all of—that's my news-gathering sources. Hey, whatever works. <laughs> per Reddit. Um, <laughs> You're killing it. Yeah, right? I to open this so I don't squeak Got it, it the entire time. You good? Yeah, let's not knock it over today. I feel a little—you uh, know how, like, it feels like Bernie in your sinuses sometimes? Mm-hmm. I feel a little of that. Maybe My that's what's wrong sick. with your ear. Oh gosh! Oh, I hope so. Maybe it's maybe it's connect like it's you got something going on in that sinus right cavity. Okay, I'll check. 
Are you going to check? <laughs> Emily, I don't do know. Do we need to stop by the doctors on our way back from lunch? Yeah, okay. let's do that. All okay, right. are you ready? I'm so Get ready. Get fucking psyched. <laughs> I don't know, you guys. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> on the morning of January 21st, 1998, 12-year-old Stephanie Crow's grandmother heard her alarm clock going off in her bedroom. She went, like, forever. She uh-huh. went to check on her and found her lying on her bedroom floor in the doorway, like half in, half out of the bedroom. She had been stabbed nine oh times. My God. I know, 12 years old. Oh, my God. Her father called 911. In the home that night were her parents, Stephen Cheryl Crow, her grandmother. I could not find a name for this woman. Uh-huh. Just she, grandma. Just grandma. She was living with the family while she was receiving cancer treatments. Uh-huh. Her 10-year-old sister, Shannon, and her 14-year-old brother, Michael. <clears throat> All of the Crow family members were questioned. Um, let me go back to the 911 call. It was horrible. And mm-hmm. it's the dad that called. It was hor- It was horrible. Like, mm-hmm. I found this looking for clips on YouTube mm-hmm. uh, about another murder. And what got me was the 911 call in, like, the first 90 seconds of the story before I could, like, switch it to the— Because, you know, I got my autoplay on. Mm-hmm. I'm too old to have turned it off, apparently. And I saw um, my nonsense here. Mean, uh, and I was like, okay, this one. He's he just sounded so distraught. I mean, oh. which parents do, but right. anyway. All of the Crow family members were questioned, their clothing confiscated, and their bodies examined for injuries. The parents were then put up in a motel while the two surviving children were taken to the county's shelter for children and not allowed to see their parents for two days. So I'm guessing it doesn't really state why, but I'm guessing it's because they want to make sure the parents weren't involved. Mm-hmm. And, but that's so horrible and traumatizing right at that minute, yeah. right? Like, how could you— Like, your your sister just was brutally murdered, and now you can't get the comfort from your parents. Right. You can't be in the house. You can't be, you know, Ugh. obviously, for obvious—but you can't even be with your parents. It's just, like, making a traumatic event even more traumatic. Absolutely. Okay. Um, During that time, the police interviewed both of the children without their parents knowing. 14-year-old Michael was interviewed many times for hours at a time without his parents or an attorney present. He quickly became the police's—is police's the correct way to say it? Like— Sure. Because I was having trouble. I was typing it. I was like, police's? It is? Anyway. Quickly became the main suspect. We'll just leave the police word out. They noted that there was no forced entry to the home or the bedroom, and um, later it would say that the family usually usually left their main entryway open and unlocked. Not open, but unlocked. Like, mm-hmm. their laundry room door was how they all came in. Yeah. Um, so, like, their front door to the street was probably locked, but their laundry room to the side, like, their carport or whatever, it was left unlocked. They also thought it disturbing that Michael— and we hear this all the time, wasn't reacting the way they expected mm-hmm. people to react, that he didn't seem to be affected by his sister's murder. One detective would later testify that Michael played a handheld video game while the rest of the family openly grieved and was, like, crying. Mm-hmm. So he was, like, sitting there staring at a Game Boy or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. The police were even more suspicious when Michael, who had been home ill with the flu the day before— told police that he had gotten up around 4.30 in the morning with a headache and went to the kitchen for Tylenol, but he did not see his sister's body in the doorway of her room. According to, um, like, this one police detective, he said that when you walk out of Michael's room, you would see 
Stephanie's, like, doorway, not that he had to pass her, but, like, to get to the kitchen, to get his Tylenol or wherever he was going, but uh, um, you would see the doorway. Mm -hmm. It was dark. It was 4.30 in the morning, and Mm -hmm. he's 14, and he has the flu, and he needs some Tylenol. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have turned the lights on. I'd creep around in the dark Mm -hmm. if— God forbid one of my children were harmed at, you know, when I was creeping around in the middle of the night. I wouldn't notice. I wouldn't notice until the morning. Yeah. The police thought, though, that he had to have seen his sister's body when he went out to get the Tylenol. A detective was brought in that operated a lie detector machine called Computer Voice Stress Analyzer. Okay. Um, Following the examination of Michael and interrogation, the detective told him that there were deceptions in his answers— and they accused him of the murder of his sister. The interrogation was videotaped, and we see Michael. Okay, he's, like, sobbing. He's 14 years old. Mm-hmm. He's super distraught, and he just continues to repeat he did not kill his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to, like, shock him by telling him that they found blood uh, or that they had found Stephanie's blood in his bedroom. Um, that's not the case, mm-hmm. and that is illegal to do, mm-hmm. to lie about found Evidence. Okay. Insinuated that hair was found in Stephanie's hand that was his, also not true, and said that other evidence was sure to be found. Okay. Um, he was then returned to the county shelter. Mm-hmm. The next day, he was again taken to the police station and subjected to further police questioning. Eventually, he said that if the evidence pointed to him, he must be the killer, although he could not remember anything about the killing. When pushed... Michael revealed that he had resented his popular sister, feeling that he lived in her shadow, and concluded that's why he killed her. Okay. So Michael and his friends were like nerdy little computer nerd gamer geeks. It was the late 90s, you know, computers, the internet. Mm -hmm. And uh, his sister was like popular, out doing stuff. Not sporty, but like winning awards and things like that for you know, like the governor's worth ethic kind of kind of kind of kid. Yeah. <clears throat> Michael was immediately arrested and taken to juvenile hall. The police theorized that Michael's jealousy of his sister and his obsession with violent video games, where he engaged in fantasy role playing competitions and conquered villains through fierce methods, led him to kill his sister. So that was a quote because, um, <laughs> guess what game he was really into? What? Final Fantasy VII. What? So they're saying that Final Fantasy VII Caused was him so to murder violent. His mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, this theory was in line with a story Michael had written about a fictional character named Odinrath who wanted to kill his sister. The detectives had also found the words kill written on Stephanie's windowsill, and they kind of just assumed Michael had wrote it. It was in Stephanie's bedroom. She yeah. could have wrote it, number one. Number two, man, I used to have this dream about my brother, mm-hmm. my older brother Bobby of Hot Dog Gate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he's nine years older than me. He just used to fuck with me all the time. Mm-hmm. And I used to have this recurring dream that I would kill him. Mm-hmm. And it would be, like, different ways. Once, I killed him by— um, slicing his forehead skin off. I don't know why that would kill a person, but I was like eight years old. But it did. And he was driving me fucking crazy. (laughs) So, the police had a confession, and now they needed a murder weapon. I'm sorry I got all worked up over that. It's okay. Older brothers are, mm. 
great, but... Mm. <laughs> Police also questioned um, Michael's friends, Joshua Treadway and Aaron Hauser, 15-year-olds. Aaron had a collection of knives. One of them was reported missing by his parents, and it had turned up at Joshua's house. And he said, yeah, I took it from Aaron's house. <laughs> He's like, yeah. <laughs> My friend had a knife, and I took it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. they're 15-year-olds. They're probably just fucking around. Mm-hmm. Police took Joshua to um, the station and questioned him continuously from 9 p.m. until 8 the following morning. Holy cow. Meaning that the 15-year-old was awake for over 24 hours, Mm -hmm. um, telling him that they believed his knife was the murder weapon. They interrogated him two weeks later, a 10-hour interview during which Joshua gave a detailed confession to participating in the murder with the other two boys and was arrested. So he he actually— Gives two confessions. Okay. One after the 24 hours, like, okay, yes, I did it. And then again, he just repeats, like, word for word, that exact confession mm-hmm. two weeks later. Um, Aaron Hauser was also arrested and questioned. He did not actually—he, he like, never actually confessed and continued to deny any involvement. But he presented a hypothetical account of how the crime might have happened— which you know that happens sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Because the police detectives asked him, well, how do you think it could have happened? Right. If if Joshua and Michael and you were going to kill her, how do you think you would have done it? They do this shit all the time. Mm-hmm. And I hate it. It's stupid. Yeah. Um, on the day Stephanie's body was discovered, the police also, also interviewed Richard Raymond. <sighs> His last name's Tootie. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> course it is. <laughs> a 28-year-old transient who had been seen in the Crow's neighborhood on the night of the murder, knocking on doors and looking in windows. Several neighbors called the police to report him being suspicious. He actually knocked on a few doors and requested, like, where's the girl? Where's the girl mm-hmm. at? You know what I mean? Tootie had a lengthy criminal record. Um, he was one of those guys that you see, like, on the street. Yeah. Um. He had been diagnosed as a schizophrenic. Okay, so real quick, his mom and daughter, or mom and sister had talked about how um, he did have schizophrenia, but they couldn't get him any like continuous care. I don't mm-hmm. know if it was because he was homeless and lived on the street, or if they didn't have insurance. But basically, he would have a break. He'd go to the hospital. They would treat him until he quote unquote got better. And then when you know when that prescription runs out that the hospital gives you. Yeah. That's it. It's over. Um, okay. So the police questioned Tootie, confiscated his clothing, and noticed scrapes on his body and a cut on his hand, but they did not consider him a suspect since they— um, I don't know why they considered him incapable of murder. Maybe because he was too, like— Out of it? Out of it, yeah. And they already had a prime suspect oh in his gosh. brother. You know what I mean? And her brother. The three teenage boys were charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. A judge ruled that they should be tried as adults. They were incarcerated for six months as prosecutors prepared for their court hearing trial. Mm -hmm. Um, Before the trial, a court hearing was held to determine whether the statements police obtained from Michael and Joshua should be excluded. The judge excluded Michael's confession as coerced. Joshua's overnight session was also excluded because the detectives— had denied Joshua sleep and food for hours. Okay. The, the majority of Joshua's second interrogation was excluded because the detectives had not read him his Miranda rights until eight hours after the interrogation started. Uh, 
The judge allowed the final two hours of Joshua's interrogation where he detailed the planning and murder, but the judge ruled that the confession could only be used against Joshua. So they decided to try Joshua first, followed by Michael and Aaron tried together second. Okay. Jury jury selection was just beginning when, for the Joshua Treadway trial, when the prosecution case was, like, fucked (laughs) because uh, they had found Stephanie's blood on the clothing worn by Richard Raymond Tootie. Duh. Police located Tootie, and he was taken to the police station where he was interviewed, and his clothing was confiscated, but they released him, and it wasn't until—that was— after the murder, mm-hmm. it wasn't until um, Joshua's defense attorney requested that a criminal list look at those look at that clothing, and it was the late nineties. DNA was like, it was you know it was CSA era or yeah. CSI era. Yeah. yeah. So you know, um, okay. So blood was found on Tootie's red sweatshirt and his undershirt. Um, this had already been tested. And nothing had been found. Uh, okay, so the his defense attorney says that it was an error in crime scene investigators, like, which, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm always, like, suspicious. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they say that the photographer had gotten blood on his tripod, and that blood was transferred to the floor, and then— in the jail, because he then used the tripod there later. Mm-hmm. But this photographer had had this exact same thing happen to him already. Do you know what I mean? So th- I think they were just using that story. Like, well, it probably happened again. Mm-hmm. And transferred blood onto Tootie's shirt. That's what his defense attorney is saying. Whatever. I don't believe it. I don't believe you at all. No. Um, but basically, it had been six months, and— no one else had really looked at it, and the they only tested, like, one article of clothing, even though they had, like, six or seven. Mm-hmm. And, you like, the prosecutor or the Joshua Treadway's defense attorney is, like, looking at these clothes like, are you fucking kidding me? Why don't you test that spot of blood right there and see if it's somebody's blood? Because they just completely didn't. Yeah. They wanted to fit their— What they had already in their head that Michael did it. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2004, six years after Stephanie was murdered, Richard Tootie was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 13 years in prison. Um, Richard Tootie escaped from custody at the beginning of his trial, which earned him an additional four years, making his total sentence 17 years. However, in 2011, seven years after his conviction, the United States Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the manslaughter conviction, stating in the court's written opinion, given the lack of evidence trying to, to tying Tootie to the crime, the problems with the DNA evidence, and the problems with the DNA evidence, that basically the police errors just affected the verdict and that the police did such a shitty job mm-hmm. they that Richard Tootie was entitled to a new trial. Okay. Um. In October of 2013, 15 years after Stephanie was murdered, Richard Tootie's retrial began in the San Diego courtroom um, of Judge Frederick Link, who cares, and lasted six weeks. His defense attorney would say that uh, that what I had just said, that the sloppy work got the blood stains on his shirt and all that, and that the evidence was circumstantial. The jury deliberated from Wednesday to Friday, and they found Richard Raymond Tootie not guilty of voluntary manslaughter. Ooh. Richard Tootie spent over a decade in prison for the murder of Stephanie Crow. 
um, before he was released. With their lives shattered, the Crow, Treadway, and Hauser families went on to file civil rights lawsuits against, um, there were two police departments involved, Escondido and Oceanside Police Departments, and the officers involved. This legal battle went on for over a decade, with a judge at one point dismissing the case, followed by a successful appeal. Um, a settlement was reached. The Crow family received $7.25 million, and the Hauser family received $4 million. The Treadway family opted out during the protracted litigation. I don't know what that means. Mm-mm. So they just decided not to do it, not to fuck with it anymore? I guess so. In May of 2012, a judge declared Michael, Aaron, and Joshua factually innocent of killing Stephanie, wiping their records completely clean, and no one has been arrested for the murder of Stephanie Crow. Mm. So I think definitely Richard Raymond Tootie did it, and the police fucked it all up. And I mean, because they were so focused on that 14-year-old Final Fantasy VII player mm-hmm. that they just knew that he did it and they just screwed themselves from having an actual conviction stay. And it pisses me off. Yeah, I get that. Uh, protracted litigation is like, is, is just a long, long Yeah, it took forever, so they gave it up. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is, wow. I know. Isn't I that like sad? That. She's 12 and <clears throat> you're just asleep and you wake up and find your daughter dead. Yeah. Your sister's dead, and no one to blame. Mm. I blame the police. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Oceanside Police Department. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, shit. So that was my quick, it got me riled up while I was looking for a story story, and I'm so sorry. Because what happens is I research one for a couple of days, and I watch a bunch of stuff on it, and then I go to, like, write it up, and then I get distracted by a different story, and I'm like, well, mm-hmm. fuck that other story. I'm doing this one. Yeah. Fuck that all, all that other work that I did. I want to do this. I know. Okay, so this is all from Wikipedia. Oh, shit. She's got a book, you <laughs> I guys. I do have a book. Um, it's going to probably be an editing nightmare for me, but it's fine. I'm sorry. There's probably going to be a lot of me going, I don't need that. <laughs> I don't need that. I'll start a scent. Uh, never mind. Uh, I don't need that. Okay. Yeah, nah. So. Okay. Nicole Brown met O.J. <gasps> Simpson. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't know this one. I'm, she goes, I'm excited for my story today. And I was like, ooh, me too. <laughs> you're like, what are you doing? I was like, nothing. I know. I said, is it, a, is it a big one or something? And you're like, mm-hmm. And she was being like. Sly. She definitely was Sneaky being sly. sly. Super sly. Nicole Brown met O.J. Simpson in 1977 when she was 18 and working as a waitress at a Beverly Hills private club called The Daisy. The Daisy. I like that. I'll <laughs> go to that. O.J. was still married to his first wife, Marguerite. The two began dating, and uh, Marguerite and O.J. later divorced in March of 1979. O.J. and Nicole were married on February 2nd, 1985, five years after his retirement from the NFL. O.J. played for the Buffalo Bills for 11 years before being traded to the San Francisco 49ers in 1978. O.J. Simpson was a football player? I'm just—I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. Kidding, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) OJ and Nicole's marriage lasted seven years, and they had two children, Sydney and Justin. OJ was was investigated multiple times by police for domestic violence and pleaded no contest to to spousal abuse in 1989. On February 25th of 1992, citing irreconcilable differences, Nicole filed for divorce. 
Following the divorce, they got back together and the abuse continued. Audio released later during his trial revealed that Brown called 911 on October 25th, 1993, crying and saying that, quote, he's going to beat the shit out of me. Mm. After this incident, the relationship would end for a second and final time. At 12.10 a.m. on June 13th, 1994, Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman were found murdered outside of Nicole's Bundy Drive condominium in the Brentwood area of Los Angeles. She had been stabbed multiple times in the head and neck, had defensive wounds on her hands. Her larynx could be seen through a gaping wound oh, in her my neck. Oh, God. Yeah. And her C3 vertebrae was cut, leaving her head to be only barely attached to her body. Dude, that is brutal. Yeah. That's like... Fuck. Ugh. Both victims had been dead for about two hours prior to the arrival of the police. Robert Ritt... Is it Risk or is it Risky? I think it's Robert Risk. Yeah, I'd say that. Robert Risk was one of the first two officers on the scene. He found a single bloody glove, among other evidence. Detective went. Detectives went to O.J.'s Brentwood estate to inform him that his ex-wife had been murdered. Mark Furman climbed over an external wall and unlocked the gate to allow the other three detectives to enter. The detectives argued that they entered without a search warrant because of pressing circumstances, specifically in this case out of fear that O.J. might have also been injured. He was not present when the detectives arrived early that morning. He had taken a flight to Chicago late the previous night. Detectives pre- detectives briefly interviewed Cato Kalin, who was staying in OJ's guest house. I miss Cato Kalin. Yeah. Yeah. I liked him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a walk around of the premises, Furman discovered a second bloody glove, and it was later determined to be the match of the glove found at the murder scene. Through DNA testing, the blood on the glove was determined to have come from both victims. This evidence, matched with other evidence that was collected at both scenes, was determined to be probable cause to issue an arrest warrant for OJ. While he was waiting in his bedroom, he invited longtime friend and police officer Ron Ship for a private discussion. OJ jokingly told him, quote, to be honest, Ship, I've had some dreams about killing her. Oh, that's such a good time to joke about it. Right? Fuck, OJ. Lawyers convinced the LAPD to allow O.J. to turn himself in at 11 a.m. on June 17, 1994. The double murder charge meant that no bail would be set. A first-degree murder conviction could also res- could result in a death penalty. More than 1,000 reporters waited for O.J. at the police station, but he never showed. At 2 p.m., the LAPD issued an all-points bulletin. At 5 p.m., Robert Kardashian, a friend of O.J. and one of his defense lawyers, read a letter by O.J. to the media. In the letter, O.J. sent greetings to 24 friends and wrote, quote, First, everyone understand I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, end quote. Mm. Some interpreted this as a suicide note, including O.J.'s mother, Eunice, who collapsed after hearing it. And reporters joined the search for O.J. O.J.'s lawyer, Robert Shapiro, was present at Kardashian's press conference and said that O.J.'s psychiatrist agreed with the suicide note interpretation. Through television, Shapiro appealed to O.J. to surrender. News helicopters searched the Los Angeles highway system for O.J.'s white Ford Bronco. At around 6.20 p.m., a motorist in Orange County notified CHP after seeing someone believed to be O.J. riding in the Bronco on the I-5 freeway heading north, driven by his longtime friend Al A.C. Cowlings. The police tracked calls placed from O.J. on his cell phone. At 6.45 p.m., police officer Ruth Dixon saw the Bronco head north on Interstate 405. When she caught up to it, Cowlings yelled out that O.J. was in the back seat and he had a gun to his own head. The officer backed off but followed the vehicle at 35 miles per hour with up to 20 police cars following her in the chase. First off. Yes. 
whole 35 mile per hour police chase. I mean, rough I, stuff. I can't even go 35 miles per hour. No. Like, I'm like, uh, it's too slow. 45. <laughs> and then I also just really like that this badass officer is like leading. Like, she's like, I got this. Yeah. Like, good for you. Uh, more than nine news helicopters eventually joined the pursuit. The high degree of the high degree of media participation caused camera signals to appear on incorrect television channels. The chase was so long that one helicopter ran out of fuel, forcing its station to ask another for oh my camera God. feed. Radio station KNXAM also provided live coverage of the low-speed pursuit. USC sports announcer Peter Arbogast and station producer Cash Limbach 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 Limbach. <laughs> contacted former USC football coach John McKay to go on the air and encourage OJ to end the pursuit. McKay agreed and asked OJ to pull him, to pull over and turn himself in instead of committing suicide. He said, my God, we love you, Juice. Just pull over. I'll come out and stand by you all of the rest of my life. LAPD Detective Tom Lange, who had previously interviewed OJ about the murders on June 13th, which was only four days earlier, remembered that he had OJ's cell phone number and called him repeatedly. A colleague hooked a tape recorder up to Lange's phone and captured a conversation between him and OJ in which Lange repeatedly pleaded with OJ to, quote, throw the gun out of the window for the sake of his mother and children. Damn. OJ apologized for not turning himself in earlier that day and responded that he was the only one who deserved to get hurt and was just going to go with Nicole. Cowling's voice is overheard in the recording after the Bronco had arrived at OJ's home surrounded by police, pleading with OJ to surrender and end the chase police. To end the chase peacefully. I'm sure he was probably, like, terrified that they were just going to start shooting. Right? Fuck. <laughs> During the pursuit, without having a chance to hear the taped conversation, OJ's friend, Al Michaels, interpreted his actions as an, as an admission of guilt. Most people would. Oh, my God. This man. Also, uh, OJ is whatever. I want a cool nickname. I know. Juice. I don't have any Like, I've never had a nickname. No. When I first started in radio, they were like, they're like, do you have like an on-air mm-hmm. nickname? Like you have an on-air personality? I'm like, nope, it's just Emily. I've never had a cool nickname. I know. And I didn't even think about it when I started working here. I totally could have come up with something cool. Yeah. Stupid Patra. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN, as well as local news outlets, interrupted regular scheduling regularly scheduled programming to cover the incident, which was watched by an estimated 95 million viewers nationwide, which was five more million than had watched that year's Super Bowl. Oh, my God. (laughs) While NBC continued coverage of Game 5 of the NBA Finals between the New York Knicks and the Houston Rockets at Madison Square Garden, the game appeared in a small box in the corner while Tim Burkow covered the chase. So it was like... (laughs) I love that. (laughs) The chase was covered live by ABC anchors Peter Jennings and Barbara Walters on behalf of the network's five news magazines, which achieved some of their highest ever ratings that week. Benefiting from the event occurring in the evening, Domino's Pizza also stated that its pizza delivery sales during the chase were as large as on Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) People were like, yo, give me some of that Domino's pizza. I'm going to sit here and eat it watching this chase. Like like popping popcorn and... I can't, I can't get up. I have to, I have yeah. to stay here. Oh my gosh. Thousands of spectators and onlookers packed overpasses along the route of the chase, waiting for the white Bronco. In a festival-like atmosphere, many had signs urging OJ to flee. They and the millions watching the chase on TV felt part of a common emotional experience. One author wrote as they, quote, wondered if OJ would commit suicide, escape, be arrested, or engage in some violent confrontation, 
Whatever might ensue, the shared adventure gave excuse me, the shared adventure gave millions of viewers vested interest, sense of participation, a feeling of being on the inside of a national drama in the making. Yeah, it's like watching the Scranton Strangler drive past the office. Right. Oh my gosh. Sports Illustrated later <laughs> commented the chase and subsequent hoopla was the Sugarland Express meets the fugitive. <sighs> OJ reportedly demanded that he be allowed to speak to his mother before he would surrender. The chase ended at 8 p.m. at his Brentwood estate 50 miles later, where his son Jason— His, his son's name Jason? It said earlier that it was Justin. Remember, I, I think pulled it's this, Justin. Remember, I pulled this from Wikipedia, so— Let me— Justin. We'll just go with Justin, because that's what it said at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Wikipedia. Fucking Wikipedia. Uh, where his son, Justin, ran out of the house, <laughs> gesturing wildly, and 27 SWAT officers waited. After remaining in the Bronco for about 45 minutes, OJ was allowed to go inside for about an hour. A police spokesman stated that he spoke to his mother and drank a glass of orange juice, causing reporters to laugh. Because, you know, Because he's the juice! Oh. Uh, Robert Shapiro arrived, and OJ surrendered to authorities a few minutes later. In the Bronco, police found $8,000 in cash, a change of clothing, a loaded three fifty seven Magnum, a passport, family pictures, and a fake goatee and mustache. Oh, my gosh. Neither sorry. the foot—I'm sorry, but, like, this stocky NFL player cannot pull off a fake goatee and a mustache. I, know. I don't care who Could you are. Imagine just seeing him wearing one. <laughs> is that OJ in a fake o- goatee? What is OJ doing? What's up? <laughs> Neither the footage of the Bronco chase nor the items found in the Bronco were shown to the jury as evidence in the trial. As OJ was driven away, he saw the crowds, many of whom were African-Americans, cheering him. He said, what are all these N-words doing in Brentwood? (sighs) Oh, my God, OJ. I guess I could have just left that part out. No. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, On June 20th, OJ was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to both murders. As expected, the presiding judge ordered that OJ be held without bail. The following day, a grand jury was was called to determine whether to indict him for the two murders. Two days later, on June 23rd, the grand jury was dismissed as a result of excessive media coverage, which could have influenced its neutrality. Yeah. Jill Shively, a Brentwood resident who testified that she saw O.J. speeding away from the area of Nicole's house on the night of the murders, told the grand jury that the Bronco almost collided with a Nissan at the intersection of Bundy and and San Vincent Boulevard. Another grand jury witness, a cutlery salesman named Jose Camacho, said that he had sold O.J. a 15-inch German-made knife similar to the murder weapon three weeks before the killings. Shively and Camacho were not presented by the prosecution at the criminal trial because they had sold their stories to the tabloid press. Shively talked to the television show Hard Copy for $5,000, and Camacho sold his story to the National Enquirer for $12,500. Hey, if you murder someone and the press comes to get me, I'm going to charge big bucks for my story. That's fine. Okay. I'm down for that. Like, I won't just give it away. Yeah. Yeah. But you better— Make some money. I'll make some it. money and I'll put it in your um your account in the jail. Oh, hung up on her. Like seriously, stop calling here. Uh, rather than a grand jury <laughs> hearing, authorities held a probable cause hearing to determine whether or not to bring OJ to trial. This was a minor victory for OJ's lawyers because it would give them access to evidence as it was being presented by the prosecution in contrast to the procedure in a grand jury hearing. Uh, after a week-long court hearing, California Superior Court Judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell ruled on July 7th that there was sufficient evidence to bring O.J. to trial for the murders. At his second arraignment on July 22nd, when asked how he pleaded to the murders, O.J., breaking a courtroom practice, 
that says the accused the accused may plead using only the words guilty or not guilty, firmly stated, absolutely 100% not guilty. And they just let him because he's OJ. OJ. Yeah. District Attorney Gil Garcetti elected to file charges in downtown L.A. as opposed to Santa Monica where the crime took place. The decision would prove to be highly controversial, especially after O.J. was acquitted. It, like, yeah. Why? Does it say? Um, <clears throat> oh, here. It likely resulted in a jury pool with more blacks, Latinos, Asian Americans, and blue-collar workers than would have been found in Santa Monica. Okay. There you go. I feel that. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. It's literally the next sentence. <laughs> the prosecution decided not to seek the death penalty, and instead sought a life sentence. Deputy District Attorney Marsha Clark was designated as the lead prosecutor. Deputy District Attorney Christopher Darden became Clark's co-counsel. OJ wanted a speedy trial, and the defense and prosecuting attorneys worked around the clock for several months to prepare their cases. In October of 1994, when I was born. Oh, Emily. Maybe I'm a reincarnation of... That hit me hard because I was definitely in high school like watching... knowing what was happening. Watching the verdict come through on a TV that they set up in As the I comments. As I was being born in, born in a... Oh, my God. I'm going to punch her when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Judge Lance Ito started interviewing 304 prospective jurors, each of, each of which who had to fill out a 75-page questionnaire. On November 3rd, 12 jurors were seated with 12 alternates. Mm. The trial began on January 24th, 1995, and was televised by Court TV and in part by other cable cable and network news outlets for 134 days. Darden argued that OJ killed his ex-wife in a jealous rage. The prosecution opened its case by playing a 911 call from Nicole Brown on January 1st, 1989, which she expressed fear that OJ would physically harm her, and she, he could be heard yelling at her in the background. Other material mm. related to domestic violence was presented, including another 911 phone call that Nicole made on that one that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. That Nicole made on October 25th, 1993, expressing the same thing, and he could be heard shouting in the background again less than eight months before the murders. The prosecution also presented dozens of expert witnesses to place OJ at the scene of the crime on subjects ranging from DNA, prof- DNA profiling to blood and shoe print analysis. During the opening weeks of the trial, the prosecution presented evidence that O.J. had a history of physically abusing Nicole. O.J. O.J. <laughs> O.J. O.J.'s lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, argued that only a tiny fraction of women who are abused by their spouses are murdered. Within days after the start of the trial, lawyers and those viewing the trial from a single closed-circuit TV camera in the courtroom saw an emerging pattern. Continual and countless interruptions with objections from both sides of the courtroom, as well as one sidebar conference after another with the judge beyond earshot of the unseen jury located just below and out of the camera's frame. Objection. Order in the court. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Oh, no, my shoe. According to media reports, Clark thought that the woman, regardless of race, would sympathize with the domestic violence aspect of the case and connect with her personally. On the other hand, the defense's research suggested that women generally were more likely to acquit acquit than men, and that jurors did not respond well to Clark's combative style of litigation. The defense also speculated that black women would not be as sympathetic as white women to the victim, who was white, because of tensions about interracial marriages. Oh, Mm -hmm. fuck. I didn't even think about that. Both sides accepted a disproportionate number of female jurors from an original jury pool. Oh, this is about the jury selection. Mm. From an original jury pool of 40% white, 28% black, 17% Hispanic, 15% 15% Asian. The final jury for the trial had 10 women and two men, of which were nine blacks, two whites, and one Hispanic. 
At the start of the trial, 12 jurors and 12 alternates were selected from a pool of 250 potential jurors. Over the course of the trial, 10 were dismissed for a wide variety of reasons. Only four of the original jurors remain on the final panel. During the middle of the trial, a number of the jurors staged what the media called a revolt. After being sequestered for 101 days, 13 of the 18 jurors refused to enter the courtroom until they were granted a meeting with Judge Ito. Eventually, the jury returned with 13 members wearing black or dark colored coats dark-colored clothing in what was described as a funeral procession. Mm. The prosecution believed it had a strong case despite the lack of known witnesses to the crime and the failure to recover the murder weapon. Clark's case was supported by DNA evidence, and she expected a conviction. From the physical evidence that was collected, the prosecution claimed that O.J. drove to Brown's house on the evening of June 12th with the intention of killing her. They maintained that Brown had put their two children to bed and was getting ready to go to bed herself when she opened the front door of her house after either responding to a knock on the door or hearing a noise a noise outside. OJ allegedly grabbed her before she could scream and attacked her with a knife. Forensic evidence from the L.A. County coroner alleged that Goldman arrived at the front gate to the townhouse sometime during the assault and that the assailant had apparently attacked him and stabbed him repeatedly in the neck and chest with one hand while restraining him with an arm chokehold. Brown was found laying face down while when authorities arrived at the scene. According to the prosecution's account, after O.J. had finished with Goldman, he put Brown's head back. He pulled Brown's head back using her hair, put his foot on her back, and slit her throat with a knife, severing her carotid artery. Fuck. Yeah. That is intense. They argued further that O.J. left a trail of blood from the condo to the alley behind it. There was also testimony that three drops of O.J.'s blood were found on the driveway near the gate of his house on Rockingham Drive. According to the prosecution, O.J. was last seen in public at 9.36 p.m. that evening when he returned to the front gate of his house with Kaylin. Uh, I already said that. O.J. was not seen again until 10.54 p.m., an hour and 18 minutes later, when he came out of the front door of his house to a waiting limousine he had hired to take him to LAX to fly to a Hertz convention in Chicago. Hertz, don't it? (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. This is serious. It's fine. The defense and prosecution both agreed that the murders took place between 10.15 and 10.40 p.m., with the prosecution alleging that O.J. had driven his Bronco during the required five minutes to and from the to and from the murder scene. They presented a witness in the vicinity of Bundy Drive who saw a car similar to his Bronco speeding away. Uh, limousine driver Alan Park testified he arrived at O.J.'s estate at 10.24 p.m. Driving past the Rockingham Gate, he didn't see the Bronco parked at the curb, Park testified that he had been looking for and had seen the house number, and the prosecution presented exhibits to show that the position in which the Bronco was found the next morning was right next to the house number, implying that Park surely would have noticed that the Bronco would have been there if it was actually mm-hmm. there. According to OJ's versions of events, version of events, the Bronco had been parked in that position for several hours. Meanwhile, Kalen was in his guest house and on the telephone to his friend, Rachel Ferreira, Park Park parked opposite <laughs> of the Ashford Street gate and then drove back into the Rockingham great gate to check which driveway would have been would have been the best access for the limo. Deciding that the Rockingham entrance was too tight, he returned to the Ashford gate and began to buzz the intercom at 1040, getting no response. Park got out of the limo, looked through the Ashford gate, and saw that the house was dark, was dark with no lights on except for a dim light coming from one of the second floor windows, which was OJ's bedroom. While smoking a cigarette, Park made a series of phone calls from his cell phone to the pager of his boss, Dale St. John, 
and then to Park's home trying to get St. John's home phone number from his mother in an attempt to get the number for OJ's house. So he's like trying to call mm-hmm. OJ essentially. It was a way roundabout way to say it. Wikipedia. Wow. <laughs> At approximately 10.50, Kalen, who was still on the phone to Ferreira, heard three thumps outside against the outside wall of his guest house. Kalen hung up the phone and ventured outside to investigate the noises, but decided to not venture directly down the, start, the dark south pathway which the thumps had originated. Instead, he walked to the front of the property and saw Park's limo outside the Ashford gate. At the same time, Park saw Kalen come back come from the back of the property to the front. He testified that directly behind Kalen, a short distance away, was that he saw a tall black man of OJ's height and build enter the front door of the house from the driveway area. After which, the lights were turned on. OJ finally answered Park's call. OJ explained that he had overslept and would be at the front gate soon. Kaylin opened the Ashford gate to let Park drive the limo onto the estate grounds, and OJ came out of his house through the front door a few minutes later. Both Kaylin and Park helped OJ put his belongings, which were already outside the front door, into the trunk of the limo for the ride to the airport. Both Kalen and Park remarked in their testimony that OJ looked agitated, but other witnesses, including the ticket clerk at LAX who checked OJ onto the plane and a flight attendant, said that OJ looked and acted perfectly normal. Mm. Conflicting testimony such as this was her was to be a recurring theme throughout the trial. Do, can I break in real quick? Break yeah. in to <sighs> say, um, okay, so OJ was a public figure, mm-hmm. an actor as well, because he was in those airplane movies, right? Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> Don't like being, you know, we're kind of public figures. We're really good at faking it for some people. Yeah. And then sometimes you just cut it off and can't fake it anymore. Yep. So I'm just, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. OJ's initial claim was that he was asleep at the time of the murders. Um, and it was refuted by several different accounts. According to defense lawyer Johnny Cochran, OJ had never left his house that night. He was alone when he packed his belongings to travel to Chicago. Cochran claimed that OJ went outside through the back door to hit a few golf ball golf balls into the children's sandbox in the front garden, one or more, which made three loud thumps on the wall of Kalen's bungalow. Cochran produced a potential alibi witness, Rosa Lopez, a neighbor's Spanish-speaking housekeeper, who testified that she'd seen OJ's car parked outside his house at the time of the murders. However, her account, which was not presented to the jury, was pulled apart under intense cross-examination by Clark when she was forced to admit that she could not be sure of the pre- precise time she saw O.J.'s Bronco outside his house. The defense tried to convince the jury that O.J. was not physically capable of carrying out the murders, saying that Goldman was a fit young man who put up a fierce struggle against his assailant. O.J. was a 46-year-old former professional football <laughs> player with chronic arthritis and had scars on his knees from old football injuries. However, Clark produced into evidence an exercise video that O.J. made a few months before the murders titled O.J. Simpson Minimum Maintenance Fitness for Men, which showed that despite some physical conditions and limitations, O.J. was anything but frail. Right. Okay. No, who— What retired was NFL really player is like frail? They're, they're like, no, he, he, he's, he's played football for too long. No, assholes. Mm-mm. My God. What retired professional football player do you know that is frail? Right. My God. I'll fight somebody. (laughs) The prosecution called Brown's sister, Denise, to the witness stand. She tearfully testified to many episodes of domestic violence in the 80s when she saw O.J. pick up his wife and hurl her against a wall then physically throw her out of the house during argument. Mm. The prosecution then called Karen Lee Crawford, the manager of the Mezzaluna restaurant where Brown dined on the night that she was murdered. 
Crawford recounted that Brown's mother phoned the restaurant at 937 about a pair of lost eyeglasses. Crawford found them, put them in a white envelope. Goldman left the restaurant at 950 after his shift, taking the glasses to drop them off at Brown's house. Brown's neighbor, Pablo Fin... Pablo. Damn. Tessa, his last name is the... I can't do it. Testified about hearing a very distinctive barking and plaintive wail of a dog around 10 to 15 minutes after 10 p.m. while he was home watching news, watching the news. Eva Stein, another neighbor, testified about a very loud and persistent barking also around 10, 15 p.m. that kept her from going back to sleep. Neighbor Stephen Schwab testified that while he was walking his dog in the area near near Brown's house at around 11.30 p.m., he noticed that Brown's dog, Akita, was wandering around and agitated. Mm. He saw that the dog had bloody paws. Mm. After looking further, he determined the dog was uninjured. Schwab said that he took the dog to a neighbor friend of his before taking it to his home where it just became more agitated. Um, the friend, it's Sukru Baztepe. Okay. He took the dog for a walk at approximately midnight, testified that it tugged on its leash, and led him to Brown's house, where he discovered, there he discovered Brown's dead body. Minutes later, he flagged down a passing patrol car. Robert Risk was the first police officer to arrive at the scene, mm-hmm. uh, testified that he found a barefoot woman in a black dress lying face down in a puddle of blood on the walkway that led to the front door of her house. And he next saw Goldman's body in a, sh- a short distance away, lying on its side beside a tree and off the walkway. Risk said he saw a white envelope, which was later found to contain the glasses left at the restaurant by Brown's mother. He also saw Goldman's beeper, a black leather glove, glove, a dark blue knit ski cap on the ground near the bodies. The front door of Brown's house was wide open, but there were no signs of forced entry, nor any evidence that anyone had entered the premises. Nothing inside was out of the ordinary. On Sunday, February 12, 1995, a long motorcade traveled to Brentwood and the jurors, prosecutors, defense lawyers, and Judge Ito made a two-hour inspection of the crime scene. It was followed by a three-hour tour of O.J.'s estate. O.J. was under guard by several officers but didn't wear hair but didn't wear handcuffs. He waited outside the crime scene in and around a unmarked police car and was permitted to enter his house. Detective Ron Phillips testified that when he called OJ in Chicago to tell him his ex-wife was murdered, he sounded shocked and upset, but didn't ask how she died. Lange testified that Brown was probably killed first because of the soles of her bare feet were clean, implying that she was struck to the ground before any blood flowed. This was a key point that suggested OJ might have set out to kill Brown, whereas Goldman appeared to have inadvertently stumbled across, stumbled upon the scene, prompting OJ to kill him as well. In cross-examining Lange, in cross-examining Lange, Cochran proposed two hypotheses for what happened in the murder scene. First, he suggested that one or more drug dealers encountered Brown while looking for her friend. Um, in the second hypothesis, hypothesis. Cochran suggested that an assassin or assassins followed Goldman to Brown's house to kill him. Assassins. Assassins. That's exactly what okay. it was. It was just assassins. All right. Ninja assassins. Case it wasn't closed. a jealous ex-husband at all. No. DNA analysis of the blood discovered on a pair of OJ's socks found in his bedroom identified it as Brown's. The blood had DNA characteristics that matched approximately only one in 9.7 billion, with odds falling to one out of 21 billion when compiling results of testing done at the two separate DNA laboratories. Both socks had about 20 stains of blood. The blood made a similar pattern on both sides of the socks. Defense medical expert Dr. Henry Lee 
who just keeps making appearance. Henry. Of the Connecticut State Police Forensic Science Laboratory testified that the only way such a pattern could appear was if OJ had a hole in his ankle or a drop of blood was placed on the sock while it was not being worn. What? Lee also testified that the collection procedure of the socks could have caused contamination. DNA analysis of blood found in, on, and near OJ's Bronco revealed traces of OJ's, Brown's, and Goldman's blood. Strands of hair consistent with OJ's were found on Goldman's shirt. Several coins were found along with fresh blood drops behind Brown's condo in the area where the cars were parked. Uh, DNA analysis of the blood on a left-hand glove found outside Brown's home showed that it was a mixture of OJ's, Brown's, and Goldman's blood. Although the glove was soaked in blood, there were no blood drops leading up to or away from the glove. No other blood was found in the area of the glove except on the glove. Okay, that makes sense. (laughs) It's like, "Mm." Mm? Uh, good lord. The gloves contained particles of hair consistent with Goldman's, a cap contained, and a cap contained carpet fibers consistent with fibers from OJ's Bronco. A black knit cap at the crime scene contained strands of African American hair. Several strands of dark blue cotton fibers were found on Goldman. The prosecution presented a witness who said OJ wore a similarly colored sweatsuit that night. Left hand glove. And the right, the left hand glove at Brown's home and the right hand glove found at OJ's home were a match. Officers found arrest records indicating that OJ was charged in '89 with beating Brown. Photos of Brown's bruised and battered face from that attack were shown to the court. Much of the incriminating evidence, the glove, the socks, the blood in and on the Bronco, was discovered by LAPD Detective Mark Furman. He was later charged with perjury for falsely claiming during the trial that he had not used the the N-word within 10 years of the trial. Later during the trial with a jury absent, he invoked the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination when asked, did you plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? Plead the Fifth. Oh, this guy. Once again, police. Mm-hmm. Sorry. In, it's fine. In a 2016 interview, Dershowitz suggested that Detective Philip Vanader, not Furman, may have planted evidence on socks based upon the presence of of anticoagulant in the blood discovered on the socks. Dershowitz said that the jury may have conducted, may have concluded that if the bloody socks were fabricated by the police, then other evidence may have been fabricated as well. FBI expert testimony said that the defense exaggerated the significance of the presence of the anticoagulant. Bloody shoe prints at the crime scene were identified by FBI shoe expert William Bodziak as having been made by a pair of extremely rare and expensive Bruno Magli shoes. Only 29 pairs of this style were sold in the U.S. The large size 12 prints matched OJ's shoe size. In the trial, his defense attorney said the prosecution had no proof OJ had ever bought such shoes. There were no witnesses who testified to selling OJ the shoes, and there weren't any receipts recovered that indicated he had bought the shoes. But freelance photographer E.J. Flammer, 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 okay. claims to have found a photograph he had taken of O.J. in 93 that appeared to show him wearing that shoe, that pair of shoes at a public event, which was later published in the National Enquirer. Uh, the defense team claimed that the photograph was doctored. Other pre-1994 photos appearing to show O.J. wearing the Bruno Magli shoes were later discovered and published. None of these photos were shown until late in the trial and not during the big shoe debate. Evidence collected by LAPD criminalist Dennis Fong was criticized by the defense. He admitted to having missed a few drops of blood on a fence near the bodies on the stand. He's on the stand. He said that he returned several weeks afterwards to collect them. 
Fung admitted that he had not used rubber gloves. When obtaining the evidence, the blood had no DNA from him within the published guidelines. He... At the June 1994 grand jury hearing, Ross Cutlery provided store receipts indicating that OJ had purchased a 12-inch stiletto knife from salesman Jose Camacho six weeks before the murders. The knife was determined to be similar to the one the coroner said caused the stab wounds. The prosecution didn't present this evidence at the trial after discovering that Camacho had sold his story. How many times were we going to say that? <laughs> the knife was later collected from OJ's residence by his attorneys. They presented it to Judge Ito, and it was subsequently sealed in a manila envelope to be opened only if brought up at trial. This was not the murder weapon. Tests on the knife determined that an oil used on new cutlery was still present on the knife, indicating it had never been used. The police searched OJ's estate three times and could not find this knife. OJ told his attorneys exactly where it was in the house, and it was promptly recovered. That's kind of sketch. What? That's kind of sketch. <sighs> Jill Shively testified in the 1990s. We've already done that one, too. Former NFL player and pastor Rosie Greer visited OJ at the Los Angeles, <laughs> Los Angeles County Jail in the days following the murders. A jailhouse guard, Jeff Stewart, testified to Judge Ito that at one point OJ yelled to Greer that he didn't mean to do it, after which Greer had urged OJ to come clean. Ito ruled that the evidence was hearsay and couldn't be allowed in court. The events of the Bronco chase and the materials in the Bronco, including cash, handgun, and disguise, were not presented to the jury. Prosecution didn't cover O.J.'s apparent suicide note and statement to the police. A few months before the 94 murders, O.J. completed a film pilot for Frogmen, an adventure series in which he starred. Although the prosecution investigator reports that O.J., who played the leader of the group of former U.S. Navy SEALs, received a fair amount of military training, including a use for a knife, for Frogman and holds mm. a knife to the throat of a woman in one scene that wasn't introduced as evidence either. Okay, so we talked about the blood on the glove that was found at Brown's house. The glove at OJ's house also contained a long strand of blonde hair similar to Brown's hair. Mm. Um, on June 15th, 1995, uh, Bailey goaded Darden. Okay, June 15th, 1995. O.J. was asked to put on the leather, the leather glove that was found at the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. The prosecution had earlier decided against asking O.J. to try on the gloves because the glove had been soaked in blood from O.J. Brown and Goldman and frozen and unfrozen several times. The leather glove seemed too tight for O.J. to put on easily, especially over the sanitary gloves he wore underneath. Okay. So it was a leather glove, yeah. right? Yeah. And it had been wet and then dried out, mm -hmm. and he was also wearing a rubber glove before mm -hmm. he tried on this crusty-ass old leather glove. Yeah. 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 Um, Yulman came up with, and Conkren repeated, a quip that has been used several times in relations to other points in the closing arguments. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yep. On June 22nd, 1995, Darden told Judge Ito of his concerns that OJ, quote, has arthritis, and we looked at the medication he takes, and some of it is anti-inflammatory. We're told he has not taken the stuff for a day, causing swelling in the joints and inflammation in his hands. However, this theory was debunked by Cochran, who informed Judge Ito on the record the next day that Sean Chapman contacted the Los Angeles County Jail doctor who confirmed OJ was taking his medication every day and that the jail's medical records verified this. He said, OJ takes his medicine every day. He, he's never he's never at any time not taken his medicine for his rheumatoid arthritis. S sulfith 
Theazel, I think it's called. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that the records in the jail indicate that. And I think that the records should be made clear in that regard. As we took to the further statement, as I said, talked to Dr. Johnson this morning, who verifies the fact also. So I felt compelled to indicate that to the court. Prosecution also stated their belief that the glove shrank from having been soaked in blood in later testing. Yeah. They presented a photo trial, a photo during the trial of OJ earlier wearing the same type of glove that was found at the crime scene. Some racial stuff. Oh, my uh, gosh. We want to talk about. All encompassing. Some yeah. racial stuff. You know, you can put it together. Um, okay. If you weren't a baby in 1994, you might have lived it. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Did that sound uh, Did that sound rude? No, it's okay. A little bit. It's okay. OJ hired a team of high-profile defense lawyers, including Bailey Kardashian, Shapiro, Dershowitz, Cochran, Ullman, um, who was then the dean of law at Santa Clara University, Carl E. Douglas, and Sean Hawley. Two attorneys specializing in DNA evidence, Sheck and Peter Newfield, were hired to attempt to discredit the prosecution's DNA evidence. They argued that OJ was the victim of police fraud and that they deserve and what they termed as sloppy internal procedures, which had contaminated the DNA evidence. OJ's defense was said to have cost between three and six million dollars. OJ's defense team, dubbed the Dream Team, by reporters, argued that Furman had planted the evidence at the crime scene. LAPD criminalists Fung and Mazzola were subject to strong scrutiny. OJ's defense sought to show one or more hitmen hired. Oh, OJ's defense sought to show that one or more hitmen hired by drug dealers had murdered Brown and Goldman, giving them both Colombian neckties because they mm-hmm. were looking for Brown's friend, the cocaine user who had failed to, who had failed to pay for her drugs. However, Judge Ito barred testimony about her drug use. She had stayed for several days at Brown's condo until entering rehab four days before the killings. Ito stated that the defense had pro- had failed to provide sufficient direct or circumstantial evidence that the scenario was possible, indicating I find the I find that the offer of proof regarding motive to be highly speculative. Consequently, he pre- he prohibited prohibited Christian Reichard from testifying about his former girlfriend Resnick's drug problems. Okay. Okay. Ten oh seven on October third, nineteen ninety five. OJ was acquitted on both counts of murder. The only testimony reviewed was that the limo driver, Alan Park, who said he did not see O.J.'s Bronco outside of his estate when he arrived to pick him up after the murders occurred. The jury arrived at the verdict by 3 p.m. on October 2nd after four hours of deliberation, but Judge Ito postponed the announcement. Before the verdict, President Bill Clinton was briefed on security measures if rioting occurred nationwide due to the verdict. An estimated 100, 100 million people worldwide watched or listened to the verdict announcement. Long-distance telephone volume call volume declined by 58%. Wow. Trading volume on the New York Stock, it's stock Exchange decreased by 41%. Water usage decreased as people avoided using the bathroom. So much work stopped that the verdict cost an estimated $48 million in lost productivity. The U.S. Supreme Court received a message on the verdict during the oral arguments, with the justices quietly passing the note to each other while listening to the attorney's presentation. Congressman canceled press conferences with one telling reporters, not only would you not be here, but I wouldn't be here either. (laughs) In post-trial interviews, a few jurors said that they believed O.J. probably did commit the murders, but that the prosecution had failed to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Three Three jurors together wrote and published a book called Madam Foreman, in which they described how their perception of police errors, not race, led to their verdict. They said that they considered Darden to be a token black assigned to the case by the prosecutor's office. Mm. 
Critics of the jury's not guilty verdict contended that the deliberation time was unduly short in comparison to the length of the trial. Some said the jurors, most of whom who did not have any college education, didn't understand the forensic evidence. That's rude. I mean, <laughs> fuck. Um... After the verdict was read, juror number six, 44-year-old Lionel Cryer, gave O.J. a black power-raised fist salute. The New York Times reported that Cryer was a former member of the Revolutionary Nationalist Black Panther Party that prosecutors had inexplicably left on the panel. There's some more racial stuff. Um, people wrote books. People wrote books. Some more people wrote books. Former Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney Vincent Bugliosi wrote a book titled Outrage, The Five Reasons Why O.J. Simpson Got Away with Murder in 1997. Uh, he was very critical of Clark and Darden, faulting them, among other reasons, for not introducing the note that O.J. had written before trying to flee. Um, he said that the note reeked of guilt and that the jury should have been allowed to see it. He also noted that they were never informed about the items found in the Bronco. After the civil verdict against OJ, most whites surveyed said that they believed justice had been served. Most blacks, 75%, disagreed with the verdict and believed that it was racially motivated. An NBC poll had taken in 2004 reported that although 77% of 1,186 people sampled thought OJ was guilty, only 27% of blacks in the sampled believed so, compared to 87% of whites. Mm -hmm. But OJ case continues to be assessed through the lens of race. And in 2016, 538 reported that most black people now think OJ was guilty. According to a six, 2016 poll, 83% of white Americans and 57% of black Americans believe that OJ was guilty of the murders. The LA Times covered the case on its, this is some media coverage stuff. Mm -hmm. The LA Times covered the case on its front page for more than 300 days after the murders, which is like insane. That's a lot. Um, the big three television networks, nightly, nightly news broadcast, gave more airtime to the case than to the Bosnian War and the Oklahoma City bombing combined. Whoa! Media outlets served as an enthusiastic audience. One company put the loss of national productivity from employees following the case instead of working at $40 billion. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the Tonight Show with Jay Leno aired many skits on the trial. The Dancing Edos, a, a troupe of dancers dressed as the Dutch, was a popular recurring sound of I remember segment. that. The issue of whether or not to allow any video cameras into the courtroom was among the first issues Judge Ito had to decide, ultimately ruling that live camera coverage was warranted. Ito would later be would later be criticized for this decision by other legal professionals. I wrote a paper on this in my communication law class. Wow. What was it? Were uh, you yes to cameras or no to cameras? I think it was just a it was just a research paper, so I didn't I couldn't put my opinion in. Oh, but are you I, yes or no? Sure. All right. <laughs> um, trial was covered in 2,237 news segments from 1994 to 1997. Okay. Aftermath. Aftermath. In the February 1998 issue of Esquire, OJ was quoted as saying, quote, let's say I committed this crime. Even if I did this, it would have had to have been because I loved her very much, right? Wrong. <sighs> in April of 1998, he did an interview with talk show host Ruby Wax and in an apparent joke, O.J. shows her shows up at her hotel room claiming to have a surprise for her and then suddenly waved a banana about around his head as if it were a knife and pretended to stab Wax with it. O.J. The footage obviously made its way to U.S. TV networks causing outrage. As of April 2001, Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective Vic Petrantoni yep. sure, was assigned to the O.J. Goldman case. I don't... 
one arena was out loud. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's a lot. 1996, Fred Goldman and Sharon Rufo, the parents of Ron Goldman, filed a civil suit against OJ for wrongful death, while Brown's estate, represented by her father, Lou Brown, brought suit against OJ in a survivor suit. Mm -hmm. The trial took place over four months in Santa Monica and by judge's order was not televised. The Goldman family was represented by Daniel Petricelli with (laughs) these names. With OJ represented by Bob Bob Baker, almost said Bob Barker. Yes. <laughs> Attorneys, could you imagine? Attorneys <laughs> for both sides were given high marks um, by observing lawyers. OJ's defense in the trial was an estimated cost of $1 million and was paid for by an insurance policy on his company, Orenthal Enterprises. Uh, Furman was not called to testify. OJ was subpoenaed, sub, subpoenaed, goodness, to testify on his own behalf. In addition, a photo of OJ taken while he was attending a Buffalo Bills game in 1993 was presented at trial showing him wearing those Bruno Magli shoes. <laughs> and the civil, the jury in the civil trial awarded Brown and OJ's children, Sidney and Justin, 12, $12.6 mm-hmm. from their father as recipients of their mother's estate. The victims' families were awarded $33.5 million in compensation and compensatory and punitive damages, thereby, fi- thereby finding O.J. responsible for the respective murders. In 2008, L.A. Superior Court approved the plaintiff's renewal application of the civil court judgment against O.J. Four years after the trial, at an auction to pay some of the money in the compensation order, Bob Enyart, a conservative Christian radio host, paid 16000 for some of O.J.'s memorabilia, including his Hall of Fame induction certificate, two jerseys, two trophies he was given for charity work. Enyart took the items outside the courthouse where the auction was held, burned the certificate and the jerseys, and smashed the trophies with a sledgehammer. Fuck. As a result of a 2007 incident in Las Vegas, not L.A., in Las Vegas, (laughs) regarding an attempt to steal materials O.J. claimed were stolen from him, he was convicted in 2008 of multiple felonies, including use of a deadly weapon to commit kidnapping, burglary, and armed robbery, and sentenced to a minimum of nine years to maximum 33 years in prison. His attempts to appeal that sentence were unsuccessful, and he resided at Lovelock Correctional Center in Lovelock, Nevada. During his 2013 parole hearing, he was granted parole on all, count- all counts except weapons-related and the two counts of assault with a deadly weapon. So, like, like none of the accounts, I guess. Right. <laughs> After a July, two- July 20th, 2017, Nevada Parole Board hearing voted unanimously 4-0. Four to zero, OJ was granted parole after a minimum nine-year sentence on the remaining counts of the Vegas robbery with Sunday, October 1st, 2017, to be his release date from prison on parole. In March of 2016, the LAPD announced a knife had been found in the 1998, in 1998, buried at OJ's estate when the buildings were raised. A construction worker had given the knife to a police officer who believes the case had been closed, who believed that the case had been closed. He didn't submit it as evidence. Forensic tests demonstrated that the knife was not related to the murder. Um, it's argued that the presence of Kardashian on OJ's legal team combined with the press and coverage of the trial would ultimately be the catalyst for the ongoing popularity of the Kardashian family. Mm. While Kardashian's ex-wife, Kris Jenner, was already married to the former Olympic gold medalist, Bruce Jenner, at the time of the trial, Kardashian's family was mostly out of the public eye before the trial, only becoming famous due to the trial and Kim's sex tape. <laughs> Other stuff. Some more stuff. I just really want to get to this one part. Okay. And then I'm done. Okay. This is a real long one. I'm so sorry. No, please. I didn't really think it was going to be this long. I mean, 24 pages. I should have known. <laughs> Mine was three. <sighs> Two and a half. Okay. So, obviously, there's a bunch of TV, films, movies, 
whatever. Mm -hmm. But the, my favorite one is the People versus O.J. Simpson, mm. the American Crime Story. That's currently, I think it's still currently on Netflix. I think it is, yeah. Killer. So good. Oh, that was bad joke. That was you, a bad I was, pun. I went, ooh. That was <laughs> a bad pun. I'm so sorry. It was so good because the cast included Sarah Paulson as Clark, Courtney B. Vance as Cochran, John Travolta as Shapiro, David Schwimmer as Kardashian, Sterling K. Brown as Darden, Cuba Gooding Jr. as OJ. It received critical acclaim and several Emmy Awards, and it was good. Good. Um, Other media notes. Rapper Eminem referenced the murders in his 1990 song role, 1999 song Role Model, saying, quote, me and Marcus Allen went over to see Nicole when we heard the knock at the door. Must have been Ron Gold. Jump behind the door, put the orange on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was waiting Killed for them both it. and smeared blood in a white Bronco. We did it. Uh, the 2002 song Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous from Good Charlotte says, includes <laughs> the lyrics, you know you're famous if you know if you're famous, you can kill your wife. There's no such thing as 25 to life as long as you got the cash to pay for Cochran. In reference to the not guilty verdict, many believe wouldn't have been the case if OJ hadn't appointed Cochran as his lead attorney. Jay-Z references the song. Hip-hop artist Magneto Deo references the song. So on and so forth. The suit OJ wore when he was acquitted on October 3rd, 1995, was donated by OJ's former agent, Mike Gilbert, to the Museum in 2010. The Museum had has multiple trial-related items in their collection, including press passes, newspapers, and the mute button that Superior Court Judge Lance Ito used when he wanted to shut off the live microphone in court so lawyers could talk privately during the trial. The museum's acquisition of the suit ended the legal battle between Gilbert and Fred Goldman, both of whom claimed the right to the clothing. The Bronco from the famous police chase was on display at the Alcatraz's Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, Ooh. as of late 2017. Look, I have another picture for you. Oh, my God. Yay. Bam. Oh, shit. That was Look really cool. You. Oh, my God. I would really like that, to see that yeah, one, though. It was yeah. so cool. I just want to go back. I just want to go back and look at it all again, even if nothing's changed. I want to, like, sit in the Bronco and, and, and be, like, touch it. fake driving, like, hi. I think I, I think Christopher and I did touch it. Did you touch we were it? like, oh, my God. I want to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, right? Oh, man. So that was really long, and I'm very sorry. But No, it was a good one, though. It was yeah. important. It was so, important. So I remember it being a big deal, my— uh, tenth grade, ninth grade year, yeah, ninth grade year, um, because that was the year that I went to the bowling alley every day for lunch. Ninth mm -hmm. grade, and we watched it on the TVs. We watched like trial coverage on the TVs at the bowling alley every day mm -hmm. when we were smoking cigarettes and eating cheese fries. Yeah, and then um, I actually they had TVs set up in the commons at East High School when they announced the verdict, but I was at the bowling alley at Columbus Bowling Center. <laughs> What's up? Uh, yeah, awesome. for, for the, yeah. That's really awesome. So. Now, I don't want anybody to commit crimes. No. Especially murder. Of course not. But. That being said. I would like to re, uh, not relive it because I didn't live it, but mm -hmm. experience this whole. Right. It was very thing. sensational. So <laughs> dramatic. Sensational. Televised. Yeah, it'd be so cool. Sensational. So, that being said, do you have any recommendations? I like a lot of big cases. I think we still have Ted Bundy to cover and I think and John Wayne Gacy, I think those are the only two um, ones. The only two big Someone asked me to do the Night Stalker, Richard Night, Ramirez, yeah. just because they want to hear my take on his hair. Yeah. We got to so. do Hillside Strangler. <laughs> Golden State Killer. That's a big one. That though, is a big that's, one. That was like a recent yeah. thing and 
So we still got some big ones to do. I was, but we also, I'm kind of tired of doing big ones. Yeah. <laughs> for the moment. So if you've got any small local ones, like we said, I don't, I cut it out last week because we just had to end it on that perfect nugget of gold. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, if you have, it doesn't have to be local to Indianapolis area. Right. Um, make if, it local in California. If it's your small towns, like sensational yeah. murder, let us know. We want to know. Patrick's stealing my sensational, sensational word. Did I say sensational? You said it twice in the past like, I didn't mean two to, minutes. I didn't mean to say it just then, no, but it's if fine. it's like your it's local dramatic, this is what happened in your town, that's yeah. totally what we want to hear. Send us some yeah. small stories off air with EP everywhere. I think that's it. Awesome. I'm hungry now. Are you tired of talking? I'm tired of talking. I want some How long is this food? one? We're at... 138. I think like this 15 is, minutes of it was mine. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is definitely the a longer episode. So good. You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. I totally mark. welcome. So I'm gonna let's go get lunch. Yay. Okay, bye. Bye.